Welcome to Proven Improbable. I'm your host, Maurice Jackson, and joining us today is the president and CEO of Denison Mines, Mr. David Cates. Yeah, thanks, Maurice. My pleasure. You know, David, under your tenure at Denison Mines, uh, it has become one of the most highly regarded names in the natural resource space, specifically with your company's contributions and success in uranium. Uh, offline, I've had uh, discussions with some of the biggest names in the natural resource space, and they basically agree that Denison Mines is going to be the next producer in the making. So it's quite an honor to have you here with us. Yeah, no, of course. My pleasure, Maurice. You know, since we last uh, spoke at the Sprott Stansbury Conference, can you please share with listeners what is uranium used for and what are the current supply and demand fundamentals of uranium? Sure. I mean, this is a question we get all the time. Everyone wants to know from Denison, uh, what do we think about the uranium space? You know, right now you've got uh, 489 reactors that are operating around the world across 30 countries. But um, the most exciting part of the story is that we've got 69 new reactors that are under construction. These are reactors where we've actually got concrete being poured and dollars being put into the ground. And then we've got another 158 reactors that are either ordered or planned. And, and ordering and planning a reactor, that's just not um, you know wishing that you build one. There's a process involved here with permitting and licensing and all of this stuff uh, requires a significant amount of capital. So, so when we see those reactors being uh, in queue to come to, to the market, it's, it's not that, um, it's pretty reliable, I guess is what I would say, that uh, these reactors will actually be built because of the, the investment that goes into it at all stages. Okay. Um, with that being said as well, have the reactors in Fukushima, Japan, have they come online? Yeah, so we are starting to see the recovery in Japan. Um, 20, 2015 was actually quite a milestone year for the industry. We did see the first reactors come back online and achieve commercial production in Japan after Fukushima. And um, we've seen additional reactors come online already in 2016. So at the end of the day, we're, we're looking like we'll see another um, five units or so later uh, within the next year or so out of Japan. And ultimately, you know, 20 to 30 of these reactors we're expecting uh, to come back online uh, at the end of the day once uh, Japan has fully re-embraced nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. Now, with, the, the, with Japan coming back online, how will that impact the supply and demand of uh, uranium? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, Japan has been an overhang for, for a while in the space um, because they haven't been in the market. Um, and obviously them coming back to the market means that they're going to be using some of their inventories and, and using material. But at the end of the day, Japan is not really the, the story when you look at the fundamentals in, in the space. The story is really China. Because as much as Japan will, will be coming back to, you know, say half of their fleet, China is adding hundreds of reactors, right? So Japan really is less relevant than people might think when it comes to the, uh, the grand scheme of things. Yeah, you know, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, as well, with it, speaking with supply and demand, how does oil and gas affect the, the, the price of uranium, or does it at all? <laughs> well, it, it, it shouldn't, and it doesn't seem to affect the actual price of uranium, but oil and gas does have a significant bearing on uh, uranium equities and uh, that's a bit of an inadvertent result but um, you know there really isn't a connection other than oil and gas being a source of energy and uranium being a source of energy but they're not they're not really competing with each other 
because nuclear power is all about baseload energy. Um, it, it's about keeping the lights on 24 hours a day. It's about hospitals, you know, things that need power at all times, large infrastructure. Um, and, and people and countries commit to nuclear energy for the reliability of it and the relatively low cost. And when they commit, they spend billions of dollars in infrastructure. Now, oil and gas is more of a variable energy source. And so when you do see sort of the regular consumption from, say, global economic activity uh, change, then it makes sense that oil and gas um, also is affected and, and it moves up and down. But, but uranium really isn't in that variable space. And so they don't really compete with each other outside of being sources of energy. Now, if you contrast that to what's going on in the equities, you'll see that uranium stocks uh, often trade with the price of oil. And we actually were looking at Denison um, just in a two-year analysis of Denison in Canadian dollar terms, and we looked at oil in Canadian dollar terms. And over the two years, the two have traded very closely together by the end of this two-year window. By compare, and, and both are down significantly, you know, there's no surprise with that. Um, but by comparison, the price of uranium in Canadian dollar terms is up. And so there's been this tremendous divergence between uranium equities, and Denison's not alone. I mean, Cameco and, and other players have had similar uh, trajectories. These uranium companies have basically diverged from what's happening in uranium and the price of uranium. And that's where it all seems very uh, interesting because if you're a value investor, there, there really is an opportunity there because at the end of the day, the uranium market will dictate the uranium price, mm -hmm. not oil and gas. But right now, it seems like oil and gas has dictated the price of the uranium equities. Well, thank you for that clarification. You know, David, based on your analysis, the price of uranium should be significantly higher right now, specifically with the supply and demand fundamentals as you just presented with us. Uh, conversely, though, investors very seldom buy low and sell high. In your experience, is this where the astute investors deploy capital to companies that have proven management, large, high-grade deposits, and a solid balance sheet, such as Denison Mines? Yeah, Maurice, I mean, that's 100% uh, online with what I'm talking about. We've basically got a situation where the uranium equities, including Denison, are, are undervalued. You look at where you want to put your money um, to take advantage of this, this uh, fundamental rise in the price of uranium that, that we believe will happen. Um, and, and really, what choices do you want to make? I think you do want to look for reliable and trusted management teams. I think Denison is, is unmatched in that area because of our connection with Lucas Lundin. He's our executive chairman. And there's few people in the mining space that have had the success of Lucas Lundin. And I think you also want to look at the quality of assets and the jurisdiction you're investing in. And I think Canada and, and the assets that Denison has in the eastern part of the Athabasca Basin are also difficult to rival. We've got the uh, Phoenix deposit and, and the Griffin deposit, and I'm sure we're going to talk more about those on the Wheeler River property. You know, this is a property that's amongst a tremendous amount of infrastructure from the existing uh, uranium mines and, and mills in the eastern part of the basin that are operated by Cameco and, and Arriva. And really, when you want to look at um, investing in the space, right? You, you can be investing on the speculative side or you can be investing on the torque side. And I think what Denison is going to offer best, uh, better than anyone in the space in, in the coming months and years is torque. Because what, 
when this price rises, right, the big investors out there, the institutional investors, what they want to buy into is the company that will be uh, able to make the most, uh, take advantage of it the most. And the company that typically takes advantage of a rising price environment the most, from a share price standpoint, is the developer. It's the company that is going to be the producer. Um, it's not always the producers because the, they just don't offer the same leverage. And it's not always the exploration or junior companies because they really may not be able to develop their assets in order to take advantage of the rising price. So it's that producer in the making that stands to maximize return for shareholders. And that's really what Denison has to offer is that path to production. And I think you're right, the astute investor um, could see that as quite an apparent opportunity right now. You know, you mentioned uh, on, uh, you touched on uh, several subjects here that I definitely want to delve into a little bit further. Geographically, let's let's share with the listeners, where is Denison Mines? Where are your, uh, uh, your, your projects right now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Denison has been a diversified company before. Uh, we used to be in the U.S. and we used to be in Mongolia. We've sold both of those, those interests. Right now, the company is focused in Saskatchewan, in northern Saskatchewan in a district called the Athabasca Basin, and, and we're specifically focused in the eastern part of the Athabasca Basin. And the, and the reason why we're there is because we think the infrastructure in that district has a meaningful impact on the economics of projects. And being able to leverage um, the, the, the milling and mining infrastructure in that district is critical. You know, we, we're, we're more than just a, an exploration company and a development company. We actually have an interest in in a mill that is operating in the eastern part of the Athabasca Basin. It's the McLean Lake Mill. Uh, our partner there is Arriva. This mill is, is in operation right now. It's processing all of the ore from Cigar Lake uh, under a toll milling agreement, and that's generating cash flow from us. But that mill is in the eastern part of the basin, and we've, we're focused there because we see a true synergy between our properties and that particular piece of infrastructure. Well, thank you for sharing that. You know, you, you've mentioned the Athabasca uh, region here. Talk to the listeners about how rich uranium is in that area compared to global. Yeah, I mean, Maurice, it's orders of magnitude higher. Um, you know, in, in Africa, you're talking in the PPMs uh, when, you're, when you're dealing with grades. In, in the Athabasca, let me, let me give you this uh, comparison, just using our own deposits. In, in the Athabasca, you have high grade and then you have exceptionally high grade, and both are, are orders of magnitude higher than grades around the world. So at Phoenix, which is one of our deposits at Wheeler River, we have an average grade of 19%. Now, to compare that to de deposits around the world, it only really compares to Cigar Lake and MacArthur River, which are also in the Athabasca Basin. So at 19%, uh, Phoenix, not having been developed at this point, is the highest grade undeveloped deposit in the world. Now, if you look at Griffin, which is another deposit on the uh, Wheeler River property, it grades at 2.3%. And it seems like that's not very high grade by comparison to 19, but 2.3% is still, again, orders of magnitude higher grade than uh, where you would find in aver on average around the world. Thank you for sharing that as well. Yeah, you know, so I'm listening here. I hear grade and I hear infrastructure. Regarding the infrastructure here, um, you have highway and you also have electricity. Is that correct? It's true. Um, at Wheeler River, um, the power line and the highway that are connecting 
the MacArthur Mine with the Key Lake Mill uh, runs right through our property, and it's it's a fantastic thing when when you take a, in investors and analysts. We've toured them around Wheeler River. We were last there in September with a number of our analysts, and um, you know we fly into an airstrip that's uh, already there at uh, Key Lake with the uh, charter jets, all very comfortable. You know, there's a, a washroom and all sorts of regular things at this uh, small airport. We jump into our pickup trucks and they drive us on a provincial highway. It's an all-weather highway. We drive on a provincial highway. While we're on the road, we see the, 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 the power line, I should say, right next to us running along the road. And then we happen to see ore, ore, ore trucks hauling ore from MacArthur River down to Key Lake. And we see all of that as we're taking these investors up to Wheeler River. We get to the property. We cut off onto our own road. And within a few minutes, we're at our camp at Wheeler River. And uh, it's it's remarkable to do that and, and to be as in such a remote location in northern Saskatchewan and yet have all of that large-scale infrastructure ready and waiting for us to add another mine. It's just it's, it's remarkable to hear that because it means you're really ahead of the curve. And that speaks a lot, of course, to management, which I do want to get to in just a minute. But before we do that, for the listeners, you had the sale with Mongolia and you received the first payment on that. Talk to the listeners about that, please. Sure. I mean, we, we identified Mongolia as a non-core asset, and so we set out in 2015 to monetize it, and we were successful in reaching an agreement in the in the fourth quarter of the year with a, with a group out of the Czech Republic called Uranium Industry. So we brought in uh, 1.25 million U.S. on closing. The really exciting part of this deal, though, is that... Uh, with with our help, Uranium Industry has applied for its mining licenses in, in Mongolia. And if they receive these mining licenses, then Denison has uh, the, the right to additional payments under our agreement. And so we could see an additional $10 million U.S. come in if we obtain two of the mining licenses. And on top of that, if uh, Uranium Industry does develop these projects, we could see a further $2 million U.S. come in as well in, uh, in in sort of milestone payments down the road. So altogether, you're looking at a, a deal over 13 million dollars for assets in Mongolia, 13 million U.S. for assets in Mongolia that really don't fit with our, our core objective of becoming a producer in the Athabasca Basin. So great deal uh, on, on, on both sides, I think. Absolutely. And before we leave this discussion here, uh, don't you have some exciting news uh, regarding uranium participation today? Yeah, we do. We do. We uh, were successful in negotiating a new three-year deal with uh, with UPC to act as the manager for, for UPC. So UPC, of course, is traded on the TSX under the symbol U, and Denison has been a partner with UPC for many years, uh, acting as manager. You know, what, what really excites me about uh, continuing to work with UPC is the fact that it allows Denison to really assert itself as a leader in the uranium industry. UPC is, is a very unique company holding uranium for the long term. It, uh, it requires that we think a fair amount about our role in the, in the uranium industry and, and really examine where nuclear energy is going. And so that's very interesting for us to be engaged in that rather than just being a, a mining company out there. At the same time, Maurice, it's critical to the Denison story because uh, managing UPC generates cash flow for our company. And so we do look at around, uh, in our budget for this year, we do have about $2 million Canadian coming in from managing UPC. And that's very important for our shareholders because it means that we are 
we're generating cash internally rather than having to dilute our existing shareholders with equity financings. You know, you're, you're providing a, a wealth of information and I really do appreciate it. So you're procuring capital right now when the market is, de is depressed. You have existing infrastructure and I, I do want the audience members to take critical note what uh, Mr. Cates has mentioned here as well, that Denison Mine owns 22.5% stake in a mill that is germane to the task, which is very important here, meaning that it's designed for high processing, it's designed for processing, I should say, high-grade uranium, which is exactly what Denison Mines is, consists of. So again, kudos to you there, sir. Oh, thanks, Maurice. I mean, we're, we're really trying to bang the drum on the story right now, and, and we really appreciate uh, you being plugged into our story as well. Well, thank you. Now, just, just for round numbers, if we can, how much capital expenditures do you believe that you're saving by having the infrastructure, by having the mill? Uh, how much does that reduce the, the expenses for you? Well, it's a tough number to give, uh, Maurice, definitely, because, you know, not every mill is created equal. Mm -hmm. and, and we do have a, a very special mill up at McLean Lake, as you mentioned, geared for um, processing very high-grade ores. And, um, and that, that doesn't come cheap. But, um, you know, I, I think when we look at the analyst community and look at the benchmark numbers that they've used to try to value uh, the McLean mill, I think it's safe to say that most people are comfortable uh, viewing that mill as, as having a replacement value somewhere around a billion dollars. So, you know, if our share of it's 22.5%, that's arguably over $200 million in value in that mill. Um, that said, it's a 24 million pound mill, and um, it will be by the end of this year, and, and we, we probably won't be able to get to 24 million pounds of annual capacity. So for, for building a project um, like Wheeler River, you know, it, it's, it's hard to know exactly how much capital will save, but you're, you're certainly talking hundreds of millions of dollars. Yes. I think this is a, a good maybe opportunity just for me to talk about one other really critical part of our story right now. And, and that has to do with a PEA that is in progress for our Wheeler River project. Um, as, as we've talked about, we've got two deposits on this project, uh, Phoenix and Griffin. You know, together we've got seven. We have 70 million pounds at 19% over at uh, at Phoenix. And we've got 43 million pounds at 2.3% at Griffin. And, and we're really excited about looking at whether we can co-develop these deposits. And so that's what the PEA is focused on. Uh, the PEA is only months away. It's been in progress for a few months. And I think just I bring it up because your point about how much infrastructure, how many dollars on infrastructure we will save, well, where you're really going to see that is in our economics for a co-development, co-developed project. Because in our project, we're going to look at a toll milling scenario rather than building a mine, and or building a mill, I should say. Mm -hmm. and. And I think that that's really important for the market to understand because that 22.5% interest in the mill um, gives us comfort that there is really a good chance that we'll be able to send Wheeler River ore to McLean. And it certainly doesn't hurt that McLean has excess capacity starting in 2016. Is there a possibility or an interest, I should say as well, to procure a larger position in the McLean mill? Well, Maurice, I would love to. Um, but I'll tell you one thing about these these mill interests is that they are hard to come by. <laughs> and there are very few people that actually own an interest in a mill in the Athabasca Basin. And you can count them on one hand. You have Cameco, 
you have Arriva, and then you have Denison, and you have our third partner, um, OURD, at McLean. So, to be honest, as much as I'd love to acquire it, I suspect that it's not for sale by any of the partners. Well, thank you for clarifying that as well. Now, regarding the PEA, you believe it will be completed You just for, for the listeners' uh, timeline. It, are we looking at the uh, summertime or are we looking at closer? Yeah, you know what? It's probably in the next two months. We've guided the market um, in the first half of the year, so it's not that far away at this point. Um, and and that's, that's what I would expect, and I think we're going to have some good exploration results leading up to it. And uh, I think the PEA... You know, what's going to be interesting about this PEA is that we're going to prepare it in a way that fits with our profile. So our profile, like we've talked about, is about being the next producer. And so if we want to be the next producer, we have to be talking about a time horizon that's that's more current. We can't just use uh, something like the future price. We can't go out there and say, you know, well, we all believe the price of uranium is rising. Look, we do believe that. But at the same time, um, you know, can you go get money from the bank based on an assumption that the price will be $70 when, you, when your mine is in production? And, and I'll tell you, you can't. So what's going to be really interesting about our PEA is we're going to use the prices that are in the market today. And so that will really show how strong the economics are for this project because the reality is, is that we won't be producing tomorrow. Right? It'll take years to produce, and the uranium price will definitely rise. But if this project can make money today, then we believe that we can go to the market, the equity markets, and the debt markets, and get money for this project. And that becomes a critical part of our story because we want people to understand us as really being the next producer, not just a company that has a deposit that someday will be developed or will be acquired by some other company. You're correct on that as well. You know, I know I speak for the listeners as well. We're we're excited to look. Uh, we're looking forward to the PEA being released here. Uh, switching gears, let's discuss the company here a little bit more in depth. What are the company's goals? And you've kind of touched on them here. And how do you plan to accomplish them? I mean, our, our objective right now is quite simple. Um, it, it, number one, it's always been shareholder value. Okay, there's no no doubt about that. Um, the reason why we're focused right now on becoming the next producer is because of that uh, that maximum torque that we talked about. We think that gives our shareholders the best bang for their investment buck by finding that spot in time for the uranium market to surge. As soon as those uranium prices move, uh, dollars are going to come into that producer in the making spot, and, and that's really our objective in the in the near term is to is to claim that spot in the market. Okay. And what can go wrong, and how will investors know what is going wrong, and what will you do if it goes wrong? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's, you know, it's a hard-hitting question, Maurice, but it's a good one. Um, you know, it will go wrong if, if our economics on our project aren't good enough to actually make money in a reasonable price environment. So if we can't deliver um, a project that makes money, then we certainly can't be the next producer. And I think the market will know that by would know if we if, if we failed based on the results in our PEA, and and the reality is is, is if, if we can't be that next producer, then we're certainly well positioned to continue to be a strong explorer. We have just under 400,000 hectares of ground in the eastern part of the basin, 
And we certainly have a, a number of projects that we've worked each of the last few years that have generated some very interesting exploration targets. Very few companies have been active in the last few years in the eastern part of the basin. And so we think we've got some of the best targets outside of Wheeler River uh, to work as well. And, uh, and that's certainly where we would turn if it turned out that Wheeler River was not going to get the job done as, as the next producing asset. But uh, I'll tell you, I do feel pretty strongly that we're going to be able to deliver on this promise. Okay. And for the listeners, David, what makes you specifically qualified for the task at hand to make Denison Mines the next producer in the making? Yeah, Maurice, I mean, my background is, is in finance. I've been with Denison seven, uh, seven and a half years at this stage. Uh, worked with an, a lot of really top-notch guys along the way. Uh, Ron Hochstein is a mentor to me, and, and he's really brought me along in terms of understanding this uh, uranium mining business. But I'll tell you what, it's, it's not just about me. You know, it's about our team. And our team is, is extremely unique and skilled. And I'll give you an example. Our, our VP of Project Development, Peter Longo, uh, he's based in Saskatoon, where we have an office, you know, essentially on Main Street in Saskatoon. And uh, Pete has experience working for Arriva in Saskatchewan for uh, uranium projects. You know, he's, he's, he's a mine engineering background, and he's developed mine plans for projects in the Athabasca Basin. And he's actually worked in a, in a remote gold operation as well in northern Saskatchewan. So... Here's a guy who's a, is a true um, miner by, by background, and he's the guy who's leading the charge when it comes to developing the economics and developing Wheeler River. You know, I have no doubt that uh, Pete Longo will be with us through this first stage of scoping the economics all the way through to when we break ground on this project. And, it, and Pete's not alone. We have a very skilled exploration team also based in Saskatoon. Our VPX, uh, Dale Varon, has been with the company for a few years. He's also quite seasoned when it comes to uranium exploration. And what I love about Dale is that Dale really understands that, um, you know, exploration is an art and it requires a certain degree of energy from the people and a motivation to, uh, to, to deliver the best results. Uh, this is not, uh, you know, a mechanical task of finding uranium in the ground. It's really a creative task. And I think the energy that Dale brings to our team is really, really uh, quite important to where we're headed and, and the discoveries that are ahead for us. You know, I'm glad you mentioned your team because it truly is reflective in the results. I mean, Denison Mines is just a phenomenal company and, and it's proven by numbers, it's proven by grade, it's, 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 it, it shows. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned your team. Uh, what do you believe has been your biggest accomplishment at Denison Mines? Well, I think, Maurice, it's a collection of a number of things because, um, you know, I've, I've been, the, I was the CFO before I became the CEO, and we've been, we've been involved in a transformation of this company. So to, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to pick one thing. I think what it is is, you know, being part of a, a transformation where we've gone from being a, a U.S. producer with, with marginal assets that could not really do well enough in, uh, in this low price environment we've been in, with, with interests in Africa and Mongolia as well. Um, you know, what we've done in the last three or four years is transform that profile, a company with that profile, into a company that now has a clear mission of being a large-scale producer in the Athabasca. And we've done that by selling those U.S. assets. We've done that by sort of enhancing our African portfolio so that we can spin it out. And we've also done it by consolidating other assets in the Athabasca Basin, in the East in particular, 
and then finally, most recently, selling our Mongolian business. So it's really a collection of work, I think, that I'm proud of that uh, shows that we've really taken a strategic look at the entire uranium space and we've repositioned the company for exactly where we're headed, which is to make take it, make it I guess, to be, be positioned to take advantage of, of a fundamental rise in the uranium price by having one of the best assets in the world as the next producing asset. And kudos to you. I've watched the company evolve over the years, and that's why I'm so excited about Denison Mines. Um, so if, if you would as well, what do you believe has been your biggest shortcoming at Denison Mines? You know, I think Denison's uh, biggest shortcoming has probably been the, the amount of time we spent marketing the company. I mean, Maurice, you're, you're so plugged into us that it's that, that you are familiar with it. I think through through all this transition, what we probably could have done better is um, is is communicate with our shareholders and, and especially some of the retail shareholders out there. I think I think this this discovery of the Griffin deposit was really under underappreciated by by a good chunk of the market, and and really that's partly on us for not um, banging the drum loud enough. And and to be quite honest, it's been a difficult sector to be in. There have been a number of other discoveries, and there have been a number of, of other things that people could pay attention to. And uh, and I think, to be honest, that's been our, our largest shortcoming, is that we just haven't, um, you know, gone around telling people quite enough about our story for them to see how fantastic a company we've been building. Fair enough. You know, David, I would be remiss if I didn't discuss, discuss uh, fission uranium. You know, the merger didn't take place, but uh, does that mean that there won't be continued efforts to make the merger come to fruition? Well, Marisa, I mean, I never say never, um, but maybe it helps if I give some color about the merger and where we were coming from on the Denison side. You know, what we were really looking for with Fission was, was sort of a long-term asset that uh, could, could really add value in the long run to our portfolio. You know, we really believe that Wheeler River is is the project poised to be the next producing asset in the basin, and uh, we saw Wheeler River as being the means to fund, uh, you know, that frontier development in the western Athabasca with with Fission and PLS. And so, you know, we very much would have liked for that deal to happen, but um, at the end of the day, it doesn't really change our path. Our path is still Wheeler River. Um, being the next producing asset, and what we're out there looking for is is that next long-term asset. And uh, it doesn't mean it wouldn't, it, it couldn't be PLS down the road. Uh, it could be PLS, but you know, at the same time, it could be something that we find on one of our properties in the east. And, uh, and a little bit, uh, make a bit of a make light of the transaction a little bit. But um, you know, if we do find it, one of our assets in the east, it certainly would be a lot cheaper than the deal that we would have done with Fission. Okay. Well, and I know a lot of shareholders wanted to hear uh, hear that response from you there. So thank you for sharing that. You know, Rick Rule, he's the chairman of Sprout U.S. Holdings, and he references that in the natural resource space, there are names that have a repute for being seriously successful. And they're Robert Friedland, Ross Beatty, and Lucas Lundin. Now, Mr. Lundin recently took a position on the board of directors. What prompted that decision? Well, Marisa, Lucas has been with Denison uh, since since the merger with International Uranium in 2006. Uh, you know, he served as the chairman of Denison for a number of years. He um, he he uh, he stepped aside as chairman earlier in 20, 2015, and Ron Hochstein was promoted to that post. Lucas stayed on as a director, but uh, following the merger, 
that, that didn't happen with Fission, we made a strategic decision um, for Lucas to become even more engaged with Denison. And then so he took the post of executive chairman. And what I can tell you is that uh, you're 100% right about Lucas being a unique um, person in, in, in the mining space and having an unparalleled track record. And uh, it, we're quite, you know, quite honored to have him serve as our executive chairman and to be accessible for the, for the management team here. You know, Lucas is very plugged in with the Denison story. He's, uh, he's, he's following up with us on a regular basis about the progress we're making on our corporate objectives. And, and he's bullish about uranium. He was bullish about uranium when we were involved in the merger, and he's still bullish about uranium now. And you can see that um, with where we're trying to take the Wheeler River project and how we're trying to build this company into being that next producer. That, uh, that's an idea that Lucas is fully behind. And like I said, we're actually quite blessed to have Lucas uh, wanting to be so engaged in our story. Well, I can tell you, I know a lot of shareholders are excited as well <laughs> to have uh, Mr. Lundin there. So uh, take the position, I should say. Um, who are the biggest institutional investors and uh, how much did they or will they pay and when can they sell? Well, Maurice, we hope they never sell. Um, but um, our biggest institutional shareholders, uh, you know, really there's there's two, two three groups of, of large shareholders out there. Uh, we have a, a group from Korea called KEPCO. This is a Korean utility. So they, they have a significant interest around 11% of Denison. Um, we also have a, a, um, a company here in Canada called Butyl Goodman. That's a fund uh, that is invested in Denison. They're a significant shareholder. And I think the third one is basically the Lundin family interest. So between those three shareholders, you know, we, we really hope that uh, none of them are looking to sell. And we, from what we understand, they're all really in it for the long run on Denison. And, and you know, we're, we're actually quite happy to have all three of them be, be strong supporters for the company. Okay. And finally, let's discuss some numbers. Let's talk about the balance sheet and shares. And the floor is yours here. Yeah, sure. We've got um, we've got just around 518 million shares outstanding. Uh, we've got a market cap in Canada in the uh, 330, 350 million dollar range right now. That's historically low based on where we have been in the past. And, uh, and again, that's that's that oil and gas connection that seems to be dragging us down. Um, balance sheet wise, you know, we're we're funded for 2016. We raised money in the flow through market. In, uh, in 2015, uh, $15 million Canadian that we raised in 2015, and, and that's uh, earmarked for 2016. So our exploration activities funded through 2016. We've talked a little bit about cash flow. I think whenever we bring up the balance sheet, really critical to talk about the fact that we've got internal sources of cash flow. Uh, McLean Lake Mill processing ore from the Cigar Lake mine, that's going to generate toll milling revenue for Denison this year. We have guided the market that we're looking to be in the range of plus $6 million a year in toll milling revenues for the next several years. Um, and that's Denison's share. No direct cost associated with that toll milling. The Cigar Lake JV pays for the cost of operating the mill generally. Um, but we also have cash flow coming from managing UPC. So you can add another $2 million roughly a year uh, to Denison's account for managing UPC. And then we have an environmental services division. So we do have a group of, of skilled in, uh, in environmental um, technicians and, and, and professionals that are based in Elliott Lake, Ontario. They provide environmental services to third parties and governments in Canada, and they generate cash flow. 
Uh, we're looking for them to generate somewhere in the range of one to $1.2 million Canadian this year in, in cash flow. And we'll use those proceeds to pay some of our own liabilities in Elliott Lake, but also to fund uh, parts of our other parts of our business. And so when you add that all up, you've got a development company uh, that has a very unique profile because it has, say, eight to ten million dollars in internally generated cash flow, and that really just means to our shareholders that we are not having to go out and raise money to uh, to fund every dollar we spend. We're really only raising money that uh, will go directly into the ground in the form of, say, exploration or or uh, development dollars. Okay, and um, with that being said. Uh, how, what is the current liquidation value of the company versus the market cap? Well, market cap uh, in that three, 330 to 350 range, um, you know, we're, we're trading at significant discounts to NAVs. If we look at our analyst NAV estimates, you know, we may be in right now at the 0.3 of NAV range. Analysts have, have easily had valuations in Denison in the 800 to billion dollar range. So uh, quite a low level. Uh, historically, and, and if you're a value investor, given the fundamentals in the uranium space, certainly not uh, not the worst time to be looking at investing. <laughs> Absolutely. And and for the listeners, the ticker symbol, symbol, I should say, I'm sorry, on the New York Stock Exchange is DNN, and on the Toronto Stock Exchange, it is DML. David, for listeners, if they wanted to get more information, who should they contact? Well, Maurice, two things. Uh, they can certainly check out our website at uh, denisonminds.com. But uh, what I'd really love for them all to do is to join us on Twitter. Uh, we do have a Twitter handle, at Co, And uh, we are regularly updating all of our shareholders on Twitter. And uh, it has proved to be a very effective way for people to stay plugged in with our story. Well, thank you again for joining us today, Mr. Cates. It's been, a, it's, it's been an honor. It truly has. Maurice, my pleasure as always. Thanks very much for, for being so plugged in. You're more than welcome. Let's do it again in the near future. Will do, Maurice. Thank you. The information presented on Proven Improbable is provided for educational and informational purposes only, without any express or implied warranty of any kind, including warranties of accuracy, completeness, or fitness for any particular purpose. The information is not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice, or any other advice. You should not make any financial, investment, or trading decision based on any of the information presented without first undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional broker.